good evening, everyone. Welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. It's good to be with God's people on the Lord's Day, isn't it? One of the, uh, I've said this before, but the most exciting time of the week for me is when I come to the house of the Lord on the Lord's Day, and the man of God steps to the pulpit and says, Open God's Word. It's a wonderful time. And we're thankful that God has been so good to us in giving us His Word and preserving it for us down through all these centuries. And though many have tried to destroy it, it still is pure and enriching and nourishing for God's people. We're thankful for it. If you have your copy of the scriptures tonight, open with me to the gospel according to Mark chapter number 14. We will continue our study through the gospel according to Mark. Before we read, we'll go again to the Lord in prayer. So please pray with me for God's enabling uh, on me to speak his word and on you to hear it clearly and understandingly. Our Father, we do bless you and praise you that you have given us your word. You chose to reveal yourself to us. And had you not chosen to reveal yourself, we could never have known you. In our condition, but uh, you in your great mercy chose to uh, reveal your nature, yourself, your person through your precious word. And we thank you that we can see so much of your nature and your power and your Godhead in creation. But to know you personally, we have to know you through your word. And so we pray that you would show us your glory tonight in the word. And in this portion of scripture, may our hearts be stirred. May we be reminded once again how far short we come of your glory and how, uh, how much you desire to receive your people to receive our worship, and to bless us with your very presence. And we ask for your guidance in the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, beginning again in verse number 1, we will read down through verse number 11, and then I'll uh, go on over and... and uh, and begin in verse 43. I won't read the entire chapter. but uh, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster 
flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's drop down to verse number 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one whom I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? <clears throat> day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now, uh, <clears throat> we dealt with uh, this part uh, in verses 3 through 9, or part of verses 3 through 9, last week, and uh, uh, and I didn't get completely through with it. So uh, let's just uh, pick up where we left off there, and then we will uh, concentrate on verses 10 and 11, which talk about Judas, the betrayer. But uh, Mark tells us in verses 1 and 2 that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were seeking a stealthy way, a sneaky way to capture Jesus. And uh, this all uh, came down to the fact that they wanted to catch him in a way that they wouldn't be seen to be 
uh, handling, handling him roughly or anything like that. They didn't want to be seen that way to stir up the crowd. And uh, Jesus, of course, knew that this was going to happen. Uh, but you remember when he came into Jerusalem on the donkey, uh, that his time had not been fulfilled. This was not time for him to be taken. They had already had a be on the lookout for him uh, out. They were looking for him. They wanted to put him to death already, even before all this week of, uh, of uh, trying to catch him in his talk and things like that. They uh, wanted to put him to death, but uh, Jesus came into the city on the donkey as their Messiah, just like the prophets had said that he would, and with this great crowd of people crying Hosanna to the son of David. Well, it was such a public thing that they couldn't take him then, and so he uh, uh, he was, uh, I don't know if I should say it this way, but he was orchestrating things. He was orchestrating the events because he knew when he was supposed to die. He knew where he was supposed to die. And he knew how he was supposed to die. He knew why he was supposed to die. And so this was not a, uh, uh, a, a surprise to Jesus that they wanted to take him by stealth in order to uh, keep the people from uh, getting stirred up. And the scripture says here that uh, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. This is their whole point. They want Jesus dead. Why do they want him dead? It's not because of any evil that he's done. It's not because uh, they were able to find any evil uh, accusations. They had to suborn perjury in order to even bring any charges against him. But they wanted him dead. They knew, many of them, I believe, knew that he was the promised one. And some of them said, even though he's the promised one, we will not have this man to rule over us. And so uh, in, uh, this, is, this is the plan. And then in verses 10 and 11, we are told that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, bargained with these enemies of Jesus to hand him over to them, to orchestrate a way in which they could quietly take Jesus. <clears throat> but sandwiched in between the uh, conspiracy and, uh, and the contract of, uh, Jesus, of uh, Judas trying to make a contract with them to turn Jesus over to them, there is sandwiched in there uh, this information, this wonderful account 
of Mary's extravagant act of worship. We talked about it last week, how that she got to the uh, got to the point of the people's, or we got to the point of the people's reaction to what she had done and how Judas himself had voiced objections that were motivated by greed. Remember we read how that John told us that it was Judas that brought this thing up about the poor. Here in uh, verse number four, it says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And uh, John, in John chapter number 12, his... Uh, uh, version of this he said uh, that it was Jesus, Judas Iscariot he said Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, he says parenthetically, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now John gives an editorial comment here. He said, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas was the uh, treasurer of the group. He carried the money bag. And what his hope would have been would that uh, uh, they would have sold that money and just put that into or sold that uh, uh, anointing oil and just put it into the general fund so that they could use it for expenses and doing good for the poor. And meanwhile, he would slip a coin or two out for himself along the way. And so he was, uh, uh, this is what was actually going on here. So we talked about how that uh, Mary uh, poured this expensive ointment out on Jesus and Judas voiced his own objection that was motivated by greed. However, we want to see Jesus' reaction. We also uh, saw that it wasn't just Judas that uh, had that reaction, that it was others as well who had this reaction that uh, this shouldn't have been done. This was just too extravagant. And of course, we talked about that last week. There is nothing too valuable, nothing too glorious, nothing too extravagant to give to Jesus. She didn't do like most would have done with a, piece, a, a flask of expensive ointment like that. Most people would have taken the top loose. They would have uh, put a little on their finger and dabbed it on 
a, a person even on a dead body. It didn't have to be poured all over a dead body. It was a very strong fragrance. John said that it was so, such a strong fragrance that the fragrance filled the whole house. So that's the, uh, that's the uh, uh, power of that fragrance. But most people would have just dabbed a little bit on, but Mary chose to take that very valuable uh, ointment and break the top off of it and pour it all out on Jesus. She had found something much more valuable than the most valuable thing she owned. And that's Jesus. Just like the uh, one who uh, was a uh, seller of pearls, a, a, a pearl merchant, and he found one pearl of great price and went and sold all that he had and bought that one pearl. She, she found that pearl of great price. She found Jesus. He was worth more than all to her. And so she pours out this ointment on him and he reacted in a completely different way than everyone else. He defended what she had done. He said, leave her alone. And he asked the question, why do you trouble her? What problem is it that you have with what she's doing to me? And again, the problem was the extravagance of it. Most people don't think you should just get too crazy about religion, do they? They don't think you should uh, pour your life out for the cause of Christ. They don't think you should give your life like the Ecuador Five did in uh, 19, was it 1956, that they gave their lives for the Alca people, died on the shore without ever having the opportunity to actually give them the gospel? Is that a waste? Is that too much to give? I say it's not too much to give. Jesus is worth it. He's worth every bit of it. He's worth our very lives. He asked this question, why do you trouble her? <coughs> but there was an unasked question too. And I believe that unasked question is very uh, a very profound question. The unasked question is, why aren't you joining her? They should have all been doing exactly the same thing or something very near to it. They should have been adoring and worshiping the Messiah, the one that had been promised. Listen, the, the, the uh, people of Israel had been under judgment for centuries. They had even, uh, I mean, 
back when the Babylonian captivity took place, they were 70 years uh, out of their homeland. Then they were able to go back and rebuild the temple. And we've been uh, talking some about that. They were able to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. But still, there was some, uh, there was judgment. And for 400 years, there's no prophetic voice. For 400 years, no one is saying, thus says the Lord. They have the written scriptures, of course. but there, And I'm sure that there were people teaching. But as far as having that prophetic, prophetic voice from God, they weren't hearing it. They were under judgment for 400 years. But on the exact day that God had predetermined it, John the Baptist appeared at the river Jordan and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And about six months later, Jesus appeared. And said the same thing, their Messiah. And it was perfectly, perfectly set up and acted out in accordance to prophecy. Prophecy that they'd had 400 years to memorize. Prophecy that they'd had 400 years to to. Uh, feed on and digest and assimilate and know what their Messiah was going to look like and what he was going to do when he came, how to be able to identify him. And when he came, instead of falling at his feet like Mary, instead of giving the best they had and, and embracing him, they rejected him. Why aren't you doing what she's doing? Why aren't you joining her? And he says also in his defense of her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, he's receiving her worship. Jesus is receiving her worship and I guess a lot of people have a problem with that. I mean, he teaches us. He's already taught against pride in his ministry. We've even read about it, haven't we? We've talked about it, how that he told his followers, you know, when you're called to a feast, don't go and seek the best table. Sit down in the lowest place. He has already rebuked them for arguing about uh, uh, who is the greatest. And, and so pride is something that is anathema to God's people. He, he does not want us to be proud. He says that we are uh, to see ourselves as we are as sinners and we are to humble ourselves before him. But here is a man. And he is receiving worship from this woman. Isn't that a contradiction to everything he's taught? Well, if it were you and I receiving worship, 
The answer to that would be yes. That's a contradiction. Are you, do you get what I'm saying? If it were you and I receiving worship, now I, I, uh, I have a, a little creative flair myself, I think, and, and I like to cook and because I, I can't do anything else. So I cook and, and, uh, and I, like to, uh, I like for everybody to look at it and worship me. <laughs> and tell me how how great I am, you know? Well, you see, that's that is unseemly. That's I don't deserve any worship. That's foolishness. But when Jesus asks for worship, when Jesus receives worship, it's not unseemly because he's worthy. If I receive worship, it is a, uh, a slap in the face of God because I am unworthy. Jesus is worthy. As a matter of fact, worshiping him is the highest and best occupation for anyone. That's what we all ought to be doing at all times, worshiping and adoring Him. It's our highest and greatest occupation. It's for our very best good. If God wants to give us what is the very best for us, He would give us Himself. And giving us Himself, He would give us Himself to worship. Because what, what higher ambition could you have? What greater thing could you do than to worship God? And so Jesus receives her worship. And not only does he defend what she did, he exposes their pretended love for the poor. They said... We, we could have sold this. You could have sold this for almost a year's wages. And you could have given that money, Judah says to me, and I'd have put it in a bag, and then we would have given it to the poor. But Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of that. He said, the poor you have with you always. Whenever you want to, you can do good to them. Why aren't, you, why aren't you out there doing good to them right now? You're so concerned about the poor. Why aren't you doing good to the poor now? You have the poor always with you, but me, you don't have always. He exposed their pretended love for the poor. And not only that, he explained what she was doing. He said, she has done what she could. She has seized the opportunity. She has seized the moment. She has a great opportunity. I'm not with you at always. I'm just going to be here for a few more days in my fleshly body and she 
has she has understood what I have told you over and over again that I'm going to be crucified, that I'm going to be buried, that I'm going to rise again the third day. He, she has understood this. None of you have. And she, she has done what she could. She took this opportunity to pour it all out on me. To show how valuable I am to her. To show her extravagant love to me. And you see, I, I think that's a good lesson for us. That we, we need to remember that life. And I'm going to say this again before I'm through with the message. Life is made up of moments. It's not made up of days and weeks and years and no it's made up of moments and moments are made up of opportunities and opportunities are governed by choices and we make such bad choices and when i i talk about these choices i, I think again about mary and her pouring out all that ointment on Jesus. I don't want any of it back. I'm giving it all. It's not just a, uh, uh, a moment here and a moment there. I want to give you all my moments. I want to give you all of me. She sees the opportunity. She, uh, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mary, out of all of them, embraced the cross. You get that? She embraced the cross. Because uh, the message of the cross is the message of the gospel. And you and I... Uh, are saved simply because Jesus was willing to go to the cross. And Mary uh, apparently got it. And not only did he defend what she did and expose their pretended love for the poor, not only did he explain what she did and... Uh, and uh, yeah, explain what she did, but he also memorialized it. He said, this story will accompany the gospel everywhere and forever. He said, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That was extravagant. And, uh, and so Jesus said, the whole world's going to remember her for that. But then, you know, we also uh, read a few weeks ago about a woman that had just two mites. And she put those into the offering plate. And she also made eternal history. By just giving herself to the Lord. So this story is going to accompany the gospel message all over the world. And it's doing it right now. We're, 
talking about it right now. And people will preach this in uh, Papua New Guinea. It hasn't been very many years. Well, it's more than I thought. So it's probably six or seven years that I, I uh, taught in the Gospel of Mark in uh, Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea has heard the story of Mary's anointing of Jesus uh, with oil that's clear on the other side of the world. People in Egypt, people in uh, Pakistan, people in uh, uh, China, people all over the world have heard this wonderful story and seen the example of Mary. And that's what uh, you and I need uh, to be impressed by and, and, and take, a, take a lesson from Mary and just give your all to Jesus. Well, now we come to Judas the betrayer, and that's verses 10 and 11. Until this point now, Judas has moved along with the rest of the disciples kind of incognito, hadn't he? Because it's obvious that he was, Jesus even said it, he was a, a devil. All along, Judas was a sinner. He was not a saved man. He didn't get saved and then lose it. That's not what happened to Judas. Judas was an unsaved man, and there were hidden things in his heart. There was greed for sure. We know that, do we not? We know that there was greed in his heart. And uh, that uh, had become the idol of his heart. And so uh, uh, he was so good at covering it up, though, that no one even suspected him of that kind of evil. It was hidden so well inside his heart that nobody suspected it. And even though he uh, spoke out, at the anointing of Jesus, when Mary anointed Jesus, even though he spoke out at that time, uh, they still didn't get that there was anything wrong with Jesus, or excuse me, with Judas, that there was anything wrong with Judas at all. I mean, Judas, uh, uh, he was the treasurer. You, you know, anybody can be the secretary or the vice president, but you got to be a pretty good fellow to be the treasurer, right? They're going to check on not only on your past, but on your dad's past and your mama's past. And, and they're going to find out everything about you. They're going to let you be the treasurer. And, and so Judas was a very, very good pretender. But it seems that Mary's extravagance in worshiping Jesus caused his mask to begin to slip a little bit. And just as Abel's acceptable offering being received by God infuriated Cain and triggered the murder that lurked in his heart, so did Mary's broken and poured out sacrifice trigger Judas's heart. He began to expose what he really was. Verses 10 and 11, it seems that suddenly Judas is exposed for what he had been all along. 
So let me uh, spend a few minutes on who Judas was. And I won't spend too much time. I'll go as quickly as I can. But Judas was the son of Simon Iscariot. And Iscariot, uh, there's uh, two or three different uh, uh opinions about what Iscariot means, but it uh, probably means, uh, refers to the fact that he's from a uh, place called Kerioth. And uh, so he is Judas of Kerioth, Judas Iscariot. And Jesus had many disciples, but uh, Judas was one of the twelve. And this uh, term, one of the twelve, is uh, used about him several times. In Luke chapter 22, verse 47, he was one of the 12. In Matthew 26, verse 14, Judas is one of the 12. In verse 47, one of the 12. We've already read Mark uh, 14, 10, one of the 12. Verse 43, one of the 12. John 6, 71, Judas one of the 12. So there was an inner, you already know this, an inner circle of 12 disciples. And uh, Judas was one of those 12. We read back in John or Mark chapter 3, verse 19, where, uh, or chapter 3, where God, Jesus chose his disciples and Judas was one of those disciples. So he was not only one of the twelve, but as we've already said, he was the treasurer. We read that in John 12, 6, that he had the bag in uh, chapter 13 and verse 29. Now, this is, this is really amazing to me. They asked Jesus, Jesus said, and there at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they said, Lord, is it I? Peter motions to John, who's laying on Jesus' breast, and says, ask him who. Ask him who it is. And Jesus said, it is the one to whom I give this morsel after it's dipped. And he dips the morsel, gives it to Judas. Now, how much clearer can you be? And Judas gets up to leave. Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And the disciples said, huh. He must be sending him out to buy some more stuff. Isn't that amazing? Because he had the bag. And then he was not only, not only was he the son of Simon, he was one of the twelve, he was the treasurer, but he was chosen by Jesus. He was chosen by Jesus. Well, why in the world would Jesus choose Judas? Did he not know? Did he not know what Judas would do? Did he not even know what Judas was capable of? Did he not even know that uh, Judas had this sin lurking in his heart? Well, yes, he did. But there's two, and I, I'm sure you can come up with more, but I've got two reasons why I'm sure that Jesus chose Judas. Number one is to fulfill prophecy. Because in uh, uh, Psalm 41.9, I guess I should read that. Psalm 41.9. 
This is a prophecy. And, and listen, if, you, if Jesus had not chosen Judas, we would never have known. I would never have known that this was a prophecy about Judas. But Jesus knew. <laughs> Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Psalm 55, 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throne. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Y'all know where Zechariah is? You should, shouldn't they, Art? Yes, sir. <laughs> Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. Then I said, well, look, I think that there's more to that. Than that. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So these are prophetic verses that Jesus knew had to be fulfilled. And so Judas was chosen in order to fulfill prophecy. And secondly, he was chosen to display the sovereignty of God. Or Jesus' sovereignty, I could say. John chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. This is amazing right here. And uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed it. John chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. The reason why the crowd, that's not it. That's the, okay, I got it now. Verses John 13, verses 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Okay, you get, you get that, right? I am not speaking of all of you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now listen to verse 19. This is amazing. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, 
you may believe that I am he. So you see what Jesus is saying here? Judas is going to betray me. I'm going to be put to death. And somebody is going to be tempted to say, didn't he, didn't he know who Judas was? And he says, I'm telling you before it happens now, so that after it happens, you won't have to ask that question. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And so, it wasn't a mistake. Jesus didn't stumble and make a bad choice. He didn't make a mistake. The divine decree must stand. God's righteous plan must come to pass. Scripture must be fulfilled. That is of supreme importance. But let me say this. That does not mean that Judas was a victim of the divine plan or the divine sovereignty of God. He is not a victim. He was not forced against his will to do something he otherwise would not have done. What happened to Judas was he was an unbeliever all along. Are you hearing me? He was an unbeliever all along. He was a pretender. He was a hypocrite. Jesus said he was a devil. If he was a victim at all, he was a victim of the depravity of his own heart. He was a victim of his own corrupt nature. His will left to itself to display its hatred of God. That's what happened to Judas. God didn't make him do something that he would not ordinarily have done, but God allowed his will, his own corrupt, deceitful, sinful depravity to display his hatred for God. And, uh, and this is what uh, the scripture says. This is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that, uh, that God had uh, taken Jesus and crucified him using the hands of wicked men. So how do you get to, from being a pretender to becoming a betrayer? Well, He's stored this up in his heart all this time. He's uh, been uh, hiding it, keeping himself looking like he's a, uh, uh, an upright citizen and uh, a faithful follower of Jesus. But Mary's action triggered him. And something's going to trigger you if you are hiding sin in your heart. Something is going to happen to expose you, just like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His text was from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. Their foot will slide in due time. Their foot will slide in due time. Whatever you think you've got hidden and, uh, and how uh, expertly you have uh, kept your Played your cards close to the vest, so to speak. 
there's coming a time when it will be exposed. What you are will be exposed. I think uh, oftentimes of a, a, a statement that Pastor Russ made, it's been some time ago, maybe a couple of years, and I can't remember exactly what it was you said, Brother Russ. I wish I'd written it down. But you said some people's only hope in being in church and coming around Christian people is that nobody else knows. That no one else can see what's in here. But you see, God can see. He knows. Well, I, I, do you mind if I take a couple more minutes? Now, Russ took a little time over. Okay. See, I used that against you. See, see what I did. There's some lessons we can learn from Judas. First of all, Judas is a picture of common grace because as wicked as he was, Jesus loved him, Jesus served him, Jesus blessed him. Just like he blessed others. But Judas was not saved. Judas shows us the tragedy of lost opportunity. And I'm going over that again, what I said earlier about Mary taking that opportunity. Life is made of moments and moments are made of opportunities and opportunities are governed by choices and we need to think on that. We need to meditate on that. We're making a choice. Everything we do, every thought we uh, entertain, every word we say, we make choices. And we need to be uh, we need to be seriously considering our words, our thoughts, and our actions. Judas. Like I said, the tragedy of lost opportunity, he heard the best teaching. He traveled with the best people. He saw the most amazing things. And he missed the opportunity of knowing Jesus. Judas shows us the pitiful end of those who reject Christ. He lost his eternal soul. He lost all that he held dear. And even the 30 pieces of silver meant nothing to him. And Judas is a, uh, and this is something we, I say for everyone under the sound of my voice and for myself too, is that uh, Judas is a warning to lost church members, to hypocrites, you might say. You can have religious experiences and still be lost. You can have religious feelings, still be lost. You can have religious works. You can do mighty works, still be lost. You can, and in John, um, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said to those, uh, those false prophets, depart from me. I never knew you. We, we did many mighty works in your name, many wonderful works. We prophesied, depart from me. You can hang with Christians and still be lost. You can have great, a great apparent testimony. Have you heard people giving their 
dramatic conversion experiences, their testimony of conversion. And if you hear it a dozen times, it gets gooder every time. It gets gooder and bigger. And and uh, and I, I, I mean, I had to honestly stop making a big deal about giving my testimony of conversion because it seemed to me like I was making myself more of a criminal all the time. And and pretty soon I got to the point where I was better than Jesse James, you know, and, and uh, God rescued me. Oh, listen, you can, you can have those dramatic testimonies, but listen, there's, there's more than just a date involved in being a Christian. There is a work of repentance and faith that God does, a brokenness that you always, always, always will have. You can have uh, religious results, still be lost. You can have religious affections. You might enjoy going to Corvette quartet conventions. You can preach and still be lost. You can know theology. You can even have sound theology. As I imagine Judas did and still be lost. You can, you can have, uh, you can have heard and seen mighty works of God, still be lost. You can fight against sin, still be lost. You can enjoy church, still be lost. You can have turned from almost all your sin. You get that almost all your sin, still be lost. You can have a high religious position and still be lost. You can care for the needy, still be lost. You can kiss Christ and still be lost. Lord, take this message and use it for your glory, we ask. Help us, Lord. Help us. All of us. We confess, Lord, all of us. We there's just so there's so much of that betrayal and hypocrisy in us. Give us that brokenness, that repentant spirit to be always humble before you, knowing that we utterly and totally depend on nothing but your grace. Amen.